0: So, uh, if you are just now joining us this morning, I want to say welcome. My name's Justin. I am one of the pastors here. Um, we are a new church that has come to North Houston. We are recently celebrated our one-year anniversary, uh, and this morning we are going to be starting a new series that I'm particularly excited about. Uh, we're going to be asking the question, uh, essentially, what is Christian faith? Okay, so, so if I were to ask you this morning, right, if I could just ask you, hey, how, how is your faith? Like, how's the quality of your faith? What would you say? Right, like, most of us uh, evaluate our faith very individually. And, And what I mean by that is, if I were to ask you, like, how is your faith, how is your relationship with God this week, you would often reflect on, I don't know, I've had maybe a hard week, or a good week, maybe I felt close to him, maybe I felt distant from him, maybe I felt confused, or a little disoriented, most of us think of faith very individualistically. But this is going to be a series, something I want to do for us this this series that we're going to be in, uh, is actually begin to think of our faith as more of something that is bigger than just us. Okay, more than just individually, how am I doing this week in my relationship with God, I want us to begin to think of our faith as, how is my faith doing in light of the community of people with which I am involved and who love me and who I am learning to love? Right, so, so most of us, uh, I hear this pretty often. I hear people say, like, I'm just, my faith is in a bad spot right now or I'm just really spiritually dry, like I'm not in a good season, I'm not praying as often as I'd like to, I'm not reading my Bible as much as I want to, I'm not going to church as often as I'd like, Right? like there's, there's a whole myriad of reasons that we give. My faith isn't doing so well. Often when we're thinking about like what our faith is, like the quality of our faith, we've reflected on how we're doing as individuals. The problem with this and the reality of faith is that it can never be assessed, the quality of your faith can never be assessed or tested only in light of you as an individual. Our faith is actually meant to be seen, at, like meant to be expressed, meant to be experienced, meant to be validated and tested in light of the community that we are a part of. Okay, so this is why Paul, when he writes Titus, uh, at the very beginning of Titus, he says, hey, we are, you are a true son of a common faith. Later, he'll say, I, I want you to reach a unity of faith. So what we're going to be doing this series, this new series that we're in, is we're going to be defining faith. And what I want us to begin to do is not so much think of it as, let me define my faith. Like, let me work on cultivating my faith. But rather, what kind of faith am I actually a part of? that's bigger than me, that can actually anchor my soul? Because he, here's the reality. If our faith and the quality of our faith is defined purely and solely on how we're doing as individuals, you are not nearly a reliable enough anchor, even for your own soul. So when most of us think of faith, right, and we think of Uh, of having to like coming to church and maybe like working on our faith every single one of us this morning probably walked in with some sense of like i want to grow my faith i want to learn more about my faith like i want to understand my faith better but what i want to do this morning is challenge us to the notion that you are here not just to cultivate a faith inside of you but to produce it in and among everyone else around you This is actually how your New Testament thinks of faith. So, would would you believe me if I told you that some of how faith works isn't even a reflection of how you, like the quality of your belief? Faith fluctuates. My faith fluctuates. Your faith fluctuates. I'm gonna have you're gonna have seasons of clarity, like I I really understand what I believe, and you're gonna have very disorienting seasons. I'm not sure what I believe. Our faith has a very up and down notion to it because we're very up and down. Our faith is often tied to our feelings. Do I feel close to God? That's how I know that I'm I'm in his good, like that's how I know I'm in his good spot, or I'm in his mercy, or I know that he loves me. Do I feel close to God? But so much of your New Testament, uh, who was written by a man named Paul, if you don't know who that is, some of us know him, depending on what tradition you're from, as either St. Paul or, or the Apostle Paul. Uh, and what Paul did in so many of his letters is he, the very first thing when he wrote a church, right, the very first thing he would do is not just like, spill out like, hey, let me, let me like, correct your doctrine here. Let me correct your theology. Before he addressed sin issues, before he addressed ethical issues in the community, the first thing he would do is call them to be united in their faith because what he was wanting them to do is no longer and never again see their faith as just an individual expression and a private relationship between them and God, but as something that is now dependent on and interconnected and interrelated with and to one another. So admittedly, as Americans, and particularly as Westerners, this is very counterintuitive to us, right? Westerners, we understand, we're programmed to understand faith as a very individualistic expression. I use my faith to help me get through hard times or maybe provide context for what I'm experiencing or processing something that I'm going through. Our faith, we understand very individualistically. This is how we view it in the West but this is not how Paul actually sets up faith in Scripture. I don't think this is how he ever intended his early churches that he was starting to view their faith. Because if we view our relationship with God as something that is exclusively and privately just between us and him, then that relationship is going to waver and fluctuate as we waver and fluctuate as we struggle with consistency in our own life. And so this is why, for so many of us, when we evaluate the quality of our faith, so the question that I asked you at the beginning, how would you rate the quality of our faith, the first thing that we default to is, I don't know, how am I doing as a person? But what I want us to begin to do in this series is to begin to see that the quality of our faith is not just how we're doing individually, but what is being cultivated around us by the community who loves us. The quality of your faith isn't just dependent on your belief or the belief that you can conjure or whether or not you feel close to God in this moment. The quality of your faith is also reflected in the value and the commitment and the love of your community. It's reflected in the love that you cultivate in the community that you were part of, and it's a reflection of the love that is cultivated in you. Okay, so, so one of my favorite uh, Christian artists of the 90s, um, some of you, I'm beginning to realize, weren't actually even born then. That's a really humbling thing. Um, but one of one of my favorite Christian artists of the 90s, uh, he, after experiencing an enormous tragedy, lost his daughter in a car accident uh, and had Basically come to the point of, I'm never going to write music again. I'm never going to sing again. But when he finally did, when he finally was able to actually sing, he wrote a song, he was speaking of his wife in this song. He said, as we shift through the ashes, as the tears roll down, if you can't believe, I will believe for you. Believe it or not, I actually think that's a very theologically correct and profound expression of what faith is. Just because you've walked in with wavering faith, there are others whose faith feels stro- is in a stronger place, in a cl- like in a healthier place, and this is very much also a part of your faith. right? So again, I want to go back to as Americans and individuals, we're programmed not to think this way, never to think of the quality of our health or the quality of our faith Uh, in light of the other people in our life. But what Paul will do, why unity of faith is so important is he wants the community itself to begin to reflect on and see their faith is dependent on one another. So that if you can't believe, I can believe for you. If there are moments of clarity that we will have, there are moments of uncertainty that we have. There are moments where we feel very confident, and there are moments that we're filled with doubt. But I think more often than not, our faith is often just dependent on whether or not we've had a bad week, or whether or not we're burnt out, or whether or not we've been stretched too thin. And this is why faith cannot be entirely and solely and completely dependent on us as individuals. It has to be anchored and rooted in something more. And this is the essence of Christian unity, right? So um, whenever we, we talk about Christian unity, um, there's always a couple of things that come up, right? So the, the first is when we talk about being united. Um, I don't know, one of the questions I first get is like, isn't that what cults do, right? Like, I mean, really, like, isn't that what like, cults do? Like, they kind they of gather everybody together and say, this is why we're special, more pure, more right, more distinct, more w- faithful, more whatever, like, let's hunker down together and, like, like batter down the hatches, right? And, with, like, get ready to withstand, withhold, oppose, fight, whatever, the rest of the, op- the world, right? Everybody else that believes something differently than us. Um, but I actually think this is a very big, like, Christian unity actually works differently. Okay, Christian unity actually doesn't start with uh, distinction. It doesn't start with what makes me different from you. It starts with what do we have in common, This is the essence of Christian unity all throughout Scripture. What do we actually have in common with one another? This is what binds us, unites us, and what Paul will say over and over and over again in his letters is You are a people. Uh, You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. This price is the blood of Christ, the love of God, manifested and embodied in Jesus. For you, you are not your own. This is the thing that you have in common. And so unity, as it starts in Scripture, always starts not with, uh, like, how are we every di- how, like, how are we morally more different, more special than everybody else? It starts with, how have we been rescued in the same kind of way? By the love of God for us. And so the distinction's important. It's subtle, but it's, it's very important. Uh, and so um, one of the ways that the church did this, by the way, so the early church fought for unity. Like, it was a priority of theirs, like, number one priority. So much so, and this is probably a little too harshly, but like, if there were people that were being divisive in their communities, like, they would kick them out or ban like, Like, that's too harsh, right? But like, what I'm saying is, like, it was a number one priority of the church. What they realized is that unity of the faith was the number one important thing that the church fought for. And what I, what I think is odd or what is very missing in our modern context is most of us have heard a ton of sermons on, I don't know, combating sin in our life or prayer or all of these other things. But very few, like I cannot personally think of a sermon that I have heard that was about preserving Christian unity that's been gifted to us by God. But The early church saw their unity in their faith, the way that they were connected with each other in love, bought by Christ as the thing that they should preserve and fight for and not give up on. And so the way that they did this actually was they, they developed a doctrine called the Nicene Creed. Some of you are like, the Nicene what? Uh, so the Nicene Creed uh, is, was basically what happened was the church, north and south, east and west, got together and said, what are the things that unite us as Christians? What are the things that we believe that we can always agree on? Right, So going back to, rather than us constantly trying to figure out like, why we're better than everyone else, more pure than everyone else, more faithful than everyone else, why do we start with what is it that unites us as followers of Jesus? And so the Nicene Creed was adopted, and I'm not going to give you all a history lesson. We'll be talking a lot more about it over the next six weeks, but it is the only church document in existence that is universally accepted by Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants. It is the thing that you have in common with a Catholic Church in Vietnam, or an Eastern Orthodox Church over in Europe somewhere, or the Roman Catholic Church down the street. It is the only thing that you and I and every other church, whether they're meeting in a gym at the YMCA, or they're holding mass this morning, has in common. And so this is the thing that, by the way, Restore, this is how Restore has developed its doctrinal distinctions. Uh, And we'll be talking more about this over the next six weeks. Um, but what I want to do this morning is stress unity. Okay, so, so most of us are accustomed, like I said, to not thinking about unity. It's not something that's valued often in church. But when you begin to read in your Bible all the places that Paul speaks of unity over and over and over and over again in his churches, you can't unsee it. It's littered in every single one of his churches, letters that he wrote to any of his churches, right? So 1 Corinthians one ten, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Is Christ divided? Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. He's speaking of two groups of people, by the way, uh, two different groups of people culturally and religiously that have now come together in the church that should have been violently and have been violently opposed to one another in every kind of way. He says, now that we have Jesus as our peace, he has made these two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Philippians 2.2, 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. John 17, which is Jesus' big priestly prayer, is what they call it, right? So it's the prayer that Jesus offers to the Father before he goes to the crucifixion. In it, one of the major things that he prays about over and over and over again is unity. He says, My prayer is not for them alone, rather that as all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's what Jesus just said there. Their ability to be united in love to one another is their distinction. It is how the world will know that they belong to me, the way that they love one another in unity. This is Jesus' prayer that he offers on behalf of you to the Father before the crucifixion. Uh, so, really, the question remains, right, when we talk about unity is why do it? Why does it matter? And then how do we do it? So here's where Paul starts. Every single time he talks about unity, he also brings up humility and gentleness because these two things are so closely connected with one another. You cannot look at a person who believes differently than you and thinks differently than you and actually begin to produce real love in yourself for them until there's a real sense of humility we are two very different people who have very different perspectives, but in humility and in gentleness and in patience, we're going to strive to learn to love one another. And I may not be right, and you may not be right, but we're going to strive together to love one another. He says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Titus 3, 2, he says, Slander no one, be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time after that have nothing to do with them. What he's saying here is this. He's like, for those people who want to get wrapped up and drawing theological distinctions over every nuance in their life, they're actually, not only are they not actually providing clarity, not only are they not actually providing intimacy with God or communion with God or producing love, they're actually making it worse be cautious and careful when he says when he's talking about genealogies and all of these discussions he's talking about people who are coming in and saying for you to really be a follower of Jesus here's all this other stuff that you've got to know let's like I'm gonna like you've got to make sure that you're related to the right person of the right family descent like they're bringing in all of these other nuances and distinctions. And Paul says, be very cautious. This is what none of this is actually about. You will not produce any love for one another. You're not going to produce any holy intimacy or communion with God. So be careful and be cautious for people who are overly divisive. So, what does this all really teach us about our faith? Um, our faith is not just a personal investment in ourselves, it's a shared truth among our brothers and sisters in love. It's a love that we cultivate and experience among one another, the way that we fight for one another, the way that we stand with one another, the way that we're vulnerable with one another, the way that we care for one another, is just so much a reflection of the quality of your faith, the strength of your faith, if you will, as your own individual experience of it. Uh, And I would actually argue this morning that this is actually a more defining view of faith. That it's always held up in light and context of the community that you're a part of. Uh, When we begin to do this, we recognize that it is about us together. Your individual experience of faith, however poor or spiritual it might feel or be to you, in the moment is only tested in light of the expression of your faith within the community of people who love you. And so this is why actually understanding the Nicene Creed is so uh, important. Okay, so this is why we're going to spend six weeks in it is because it does two things. One, uh, it helps us understand why this is important. But then it also helps us understand and draw the lines, right? It helps us understand uh, what we're free to explore as a church. So one of the things about Restore that I love, that we've always set out to be as a church, like, I want to be a church that is safe for you to change your mind about God. Like, I want to be a church that is safe and free for you, as you grow, as you learn, as you explore scripture, as you pray, as you grow as a person, is free for you to change your mind about God. Okay, so, so the question then becomes well, what do I change about my mind about God? Like, what do I have freedom for to, to change my mind about God? Like, what do I, can I change my mind about God? What is it that I'm not, like, where am I supposed to go? Where am I not supposed to go in my own spiritual exploration? Um, so so here's, here's what I, I want to say to this. is. Um, a lot of us have actually been part of Christian communities where we were profoundly hurt uh, because that Christian community had an underdeveloped or maybe a poor understanding of Christian unity. And so as we began to explore our faith and we begin to ask questions about things, one of the things that was communicated to us is that we might have been weak in our faith or we might have been disappointing God, right? Um, I know for me, uh, when I, so I grew up in a particular community that there was, there was a very strong stance of you cannot be a Christian, I heard this sometimes from the pulpit, you cannot be a Christian and vote for this particular party. There is no way for you to do that. And I remember as a, as a 16-year-old kid starting to question that a little bit. I grew up at a time where there was an evangelical president, and so like to question anything he did was also like, wait, that's God's man. He he was put there. Don't ask that question, right? And I'm not trying to make political statements here, but what I am suggesting uh, is that as I like begin to ask some of these questions, wait, is that is that really how this works? Is that really what God wants? Is that really, as a people of love, how we're supposed to think? Uh, I remember one time someone had made the very bold comment um, that Iraq was just God's way of opening the door for missionaries, the war. And I remember thinking for a second, I was like, that doesn't seem the way that the Prince of Peace would actually move. Uh, and what happened over and over and over again is like I got, ended up getting criticized. I ended up, people were, like there were people talking. And I remember as I went to college, I actually renounced my faith. Because I'm like, I, I don't, like, this isn't it. And if this is Jesus, I don't know what else to do. Like, I got to walk away from one. And so I walked away, and I remember having a conversation with, this, uh, with a buddy from high school when we were starting Restore, because they were curious about, like, how I went from that to this. Uh, and he's like, it's just really weird for me, dude. He's, he literally This is literally what he said verbatim. He said, I'm just always so used to you being the spiritually immature one. But the reality is, many of us have been made to feel less faithful to God, less of a sincere Christian, right? Maybe even a heretic or an apostate, because we started to ask questions of like, wait, where is God leading me in this? And the community that we are part of struggled to understand what is an essential, like what is, what is something that we always want to agree on, and what can we allow for differences in agreement? This is, by the way, the, way that, the reason that Katy Perry lost her faith. I don't know if you know that story. Uh, I don't listen to Katy Perry very often, but I did watch a documentary on her. She grew up in a very fundamental background uh, that opposed certain forms of, of music and musical expression. Well, she was like, I'm gifted in music, and they're telling me I can't, but I really feel called to this. And so for her, it was like, I got to choose. Is it music or Jesus? I guess it's music. And so one of the values and one of the reasons that I want to stress Christian unity here is that it's extremely important for us as we navigate all of the uncertainties in life to be able to understand what is it that we are united as Christians? What is the thing that as Christians who follow Jesus, who have been saved by Jesus, who have been redeemed by Jesus, and who have been loved by Jesus, who glorify Jesus, who strive to faithfully follow Jesus, what are the things that unite us in this? And what are the things that we can allow for disagreement on? Right? What are the things that I have freedom to explore differently? So Fleming Rutledge, who is at this point probably one of the top three theologians who's influenced me, she says this. Uh, she says, in our current theological struggle, many people are being hurt. Much damage is being done by stereotyping, labeling, and pigeonholing. This is often noted and lamented, but there have been very few effective antidotes. A serious effort needs to be made on all parties to understand the nuances of the positions of others. Struggling to understand another's perspective so as to engage in it sympathetically and accurately is Christian action. It's not like a sidebar, it is why we do faith. Like it is why we practice our faith together. This is central to how we express and live out. Our faith. It is a Christian action. It is a Christian imperative to strive to be able to understand the nuances of people in your church. Uh, Which means that you're gonna be around uh Christian followers who think very differently about different things. And so the creed, what the creed did was is the creed was this document that the church produced, so they said, whether we're east or west, north or south. Wherever we're from, whether we're Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or all the other denominations that we're beginning to form, this is the thing we hold together. And differences, anything that we believe outside of this, we allow for differences. This is completely and entirely counterintuitive to the way most of us have experienced church, particularly in America. But there are an enormous amount of issues that will fall outside of this creed. This universal, this is our hope, uniting us as Christians, this document. There's a mir- there's a variety of things. Everything from gender roles and gender identity and sexuality and sexual orientation, all of these things fall outside of the spectrum of the Creed, which means that we're in a place to follow freely, the convictions that the Holy Spirit might be leading us on. And we'll talk more about this over the next six weeks. So hang on with us as we go through this together. But what I want to stress this morning is the need for unity here. The importance of it with the way that we will love one another and care for one another even in the midst of our differences. And so what the creed will do is it will actually define for us like the hope that we have in Jesus. This is the thing that we can say, we believe in this, we're united in over this, and we can allow for freedom of expression and all of these other things as we follow the Spirit's leading and convicting. Right? This is, by the way, as a parent, if you're a parent, this is the way you will healthily raise your kids spiritually without burdening them. By giving them freedom and space to explore. Right, Being careful not to invalidate their faith or suggest that they have weak faith or that they don't love God in some kind of way because they might begin to land differently than you as a parent. This, this way, this essence of unity does more than just help us survive together as a church. It, it will end up actually influencing, or should end up influencing, the way that we live our lives in every aspect. Okay, so um, one of the things that I also want to be able to be free uh, as a church, and I know sometimes this probably frustrates you guys, especially in conversations with me, Um, is I want to be able to say I don't know, right? Like I want to genuinely be able to say I don't know. I want to find out. I want to explore. But what the creed will help us do is it will help us understand what we always say yes to, what we can say no to, and then all of the variety of issues that we can say I don't know to, right? So people ask me all the time, what's your stance on gun control? What's your stance on abortion? What's your stance on this, what's in that? my response in many of these situations is, I don't know. I mean, I have deep convictions. I'm not going to share all of them with you guys because I also don't want to influence your convictions on them. They're your convictions. Um, And I'm neither wise enough nor spiritual enough to tell every single one of you what you need to believe about any one of these particular issues. But what I do want to suggest is this, is that the creed will actually give us this framework to where we can say this is the hope that unites us this is how I know I'm a follower of Jesus. This is how I know you're a follower of Jesus. This is what we have in common with one another. And so like I said, over the next six weeks, um, we're going to be able to explore this creed together as a church. I'm going to read it for us quickly, uh, and then we're going to um, move into baptisms this morning. Um, but as I read the creed, um, this might sound familiar to some of you. Uh, the, some of the language is similar to the Apostles' Creed, um, but I'm going to be starting at the very beginning of the creed the creed starts with this we believe in one God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God born of the Father before all the ages God from God light from light true God from true God begotten not made consubstantial with the Father, and if that word threw you off, don't worry, we'll, we'll talk about it. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic church. That word Catholic isn't Roman Catholic in the way that you guys understand it now. Um, this is actually written before the roman catholic church was there uh, we confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come so i, I want to finish uh here before we move into a beautiful part of our ceremony with this uh, when paul writes to the church and he says hey watch out for people who stir controversy be gentle, be humble, he says the command of all of this, the goal of all of this, the goal of this command is love. This is what we're striving for. This is where we end. This is where we land. The goal of all of this is love. And so as a church, I want to invite us to consider over the next six weeks all the different ways that we can strive for love. As we draw all the distinctions that the creed teaches, right this is hopefully a couple of things will happen one we'll feel there's more clarity of what we believe as christians right so i think this theological discernment here is something that is completely underdeveloped particularly in the american church but how we understand our faith together as a people the faith that we confess together as a people Right, so, so one, I'm hopeful that it'll actually provide clarity. This is what I, this is when I, when I say I'm a Christian and a follower of Jesus. This is what I actually mean by this. But two, I'm hopeful that it'll also show us how to love one another more fully. Right. So Restore has always been a church that is full of diversity, theologically speaking. We have people from very conservative backgrounds. We have people from very progressive backgrounds. We have people from high church backgrounds like Anglicanism and. Catholicism, we have church people from non-denominational backgrounds, we have people from Church of Christ backgrounds, Bible church backgrounds. All of these backgrounds are coming together and will hold a variety of convictions on a variety of issues. My hope is, is that we use these differences to actually love one another more fully. Not to ignore them, but I actually think that's denialism, that's not love. Love is, I actually see where we're different, and I'm gonna learn to see from your side, right? Love is to be able to describe someone else's position as if they were themselves were describing it, right? This is not how Twitter operates, uh, or there wouldn't be Twitter, uh, right? The, the purpose of Twitter is to, to be as, as destructive as possible with your descriptions of other people. Um, that's how you make it on that platform. Um, Right, but th- that's not, like, we're accustomed to that, but that is the opposite of what uh, I'm hoping we will do in this experience. And so our little ones are here. We're going to move into uh, the second part of our service. Um, we're going to be baptizing two of our own into this faith. Uh, and so I, with that, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and then I'm going to invite uh, Nicole, uh, who is our other pastor here, to come up and begin as we uh, celebrate uh this new baptism into this faith uh, that we all share together. Oh, Father, we love you. Um, We need you. Over these next six weeks, we really need you. Um, As we push ourselves theologically, as we try to understand things differently, um, Father, as we try to love one another despite our differences, would you help us with that? We need you. Father, we love you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.